Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I'm Betsy Kaplan here with Kion Wolf asking uh, during your podcast. I'm not sure what time you're listening to this, <laughs> but we're glad you tune in. We're glad you tune in. I hope every day, but whenever you can. So give us a call, but you have to support the show. We can't do it without your support. 1-800-584-2788. Go online at WNPR.org. And just like you made the great decision to listen to this podcast, please continue to make great decisions by being a member or renewing your membership. If you don't remember the last time you renewed your membership, then it's probably time to renew it. That's a problem. <laughs> That's a problem. But you're going to solve it because you're a public radio listener and that's what you do. So call 1-800-584-2788 or go to wnpr.org slash donate. And and thank you. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome. Welcome to our show. And I have to say, I think this is a show that very few other, it's an episode that very very few other shows would probably want to do. And and we we knew right away it was a thing. We just didn't know what kind of thing. Uh, we'd gotten this uh, essay uh, and this suggestion from the guest who's sitting in the studio with me right now, Kara McDonough, uh, Connecticut resident uh, and writer for HuffPost, Salon, Boston Globe, New Haven Independent, McSweeney's. Uh, and we read this piece called Why Cars Are a Popular Place for a Good Cry. And we all just thought, wow, crying in the cars, that's a thing. I mean, it really is a thing. We, we knew it right away. We read Kara's piece that kind of hardened off our belief that it was a thing. And then we just started asking people whether it was a thing in their lives. We even asked people just to call in and leave messages for us about that. So uh, here's like what one of those messages sounded like. We had just moved to Connecticut. I was very pregnant with our first child. My husband started a brand new job, very high pressure, and the baby was due two weeks after my 30th birthday. So my birthday came about. I got phone calls, people saying they'll visit when the baby's born. They'll bring my present when the baby's born. My husband was at work, so I went to stop and shop to buy myself a cake and flowers on my 30th birthday, got into the parking lot, burst into tears, cried for about 15 minutes, And thereafter, I couldn't go to Stop and Shop without crying in the car. It just triggered everything. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you, whoever you are. And I hope life has gotten better. I assume it has. So uh, also joining us uh, today, uh, so we have have multiple guests here to talk about crying in the car. Uh, Pendarvis Harshaw is the host of Right Nowish on KQED, a columnist at KQED Arts and the author of OG Told Me, a memoir about growing up in Oakland. Uh, But uh, Kara, since you brought this idea to us in the first place, I'm going to have you get us started. Um, How did you how did you know? How did you decide that? And we should say that what we're ultimately going to do on this show is talk about the car as an emotional space. Crying is probably the most obvious thing that people do in this emotional space. But some people, we've discovered, scream. Uh, some people have are, are, have more than one person in the car and they have a conversation they could only have while the two of them were sitting side by side and facing forward, not looking at each other, or with kids while they're in the back seat so they can't look at you while you're talking, all that. We're going to try to cover all of that. But, but Carol, let's start with the crying. Uh, how did you know this was a, a phenomenon? Sure. Well, the first time I thought of it as a thing is when um, I was talking to my sister-in-law, Audrey, and my father had recently died and her father had actually died a few years before that. So we were talking about the way grief manifests. 
And at one point, she texted me and said that she had just had a good car cry about it all. And um, I myself had had some car cries about it all as well. And that's when I really thought, yeah, huh, a good car cry. That is totally a thing that happens. And then um, a few months ago when I was thinking about stories to write, I was talking to people, realized that so many people, pretty much everyone I talked to, had cried in the car or cried in the car regularly. And I thought that that would be a, a popular story. All right. By the way, if you have your own crying in the car story or some other uh, need to tell us about the car as your emotional space, the number is 860-275-7266. We have a busy show today and we have pledge breaks, but we we wouldn't mind taking a call or two. 860 um, So uh, let me just add uh, Bendarvis Harsh out of this conversation. Uh, you also read uh, about crying in the car. Uh, and in fact, it's right there in the title. Uh, of your piece. He going to cry in the car appearing in medium. So tell us what got you thinking about this. Yeah, the piece um, is centered around uh, the movie Friday and a scene from the movie where a red character who's kind of getting punked um, decides to leave from his circle of friends and kind of run off to his car. (laughs) And one of the friends who stays is like, yeah, he going to cry in the car. Um, All right. And you know what? Just just to even help establish the mood here, we'll we'll actually play that clip for you. What's up, Red? What you got on my forty, homie? I thought you had two hundred dollars. I do. But I want to spend Red's money. Give it up, Red. I don't have nothing. Yeah, you got something. Why you tripping, Debo? Oh man, that's messed up. Won't you give him back his chain? Man, my grandmama gave me that chain. Oh. He's going to cry in the car. So th- we should say that that's been turned into memes and gifts and all kinds of things, right? Why Why is that? Well, Friday the movie itself is just like one of those cultural beacons. You know, it, <laughs> there's so many different sayings and memes and moments that happen in that film that are relevant today, even though the film came out in the mid-'90s. Um, and so that scene in particular, I think I wrote about it because it's about um, not being vulnerable around your friends, especially after being being turned into a chump. Um, and so uh, using the car as a space where you can be vulnerable, where you can, you know, like let loose after your chain gets snatched or after somebody punks you out of some money for their 40 or for dealing with grief or for dealing with, <laughs> you know, I, I try to think back to the first time I cried in the car and I think I was like all of eight or nine years old and my mom went inside of a store and I stayed in the car and Boys to Men song Mama came on. And I was like, oh, man, I love my mom. And I just started crying, you well, know, and it, I, I felt safe in that space. Well, okay, so there's you just said two really important things, oh, and I want to get to both of them. So, Kara, uh, right away, when he says a music triggered it, you know what he's talking about. Totally. Yeah, that was one of the major things I wrote about um, in my story. I interviewed a psychologist named Paul Sylvia who has written specifically about emotional responses um, to music, including in the car. And uh, I think that's one of the major reasons people do cry in the car is because you're listening to music. And maybe you're not listening to the music you normally listen to, or maybe that's the only time you listen to music. But that has totally been a trigger for me in the car. In fact, I think it's more often than not that's the reason I cry in the car is I hear either a song that makes me feel sad because it reminds me of something or often a song that 
brings out a different kind of response, which is sort of an emotional um, burst of joy, even or just or just pure emotion. Um, one of the things I wrote about in my piece was listening to the Les Miserables soundtrack, which is a little embarrassing to admit, but I cannot listen to it <laughs> without crying. All right, we still respect you. Uh, I you. I should probably lay my cards on the table and say that when my father died, I was with him in the nursing home. I got into the car and I was driving away, and I started to sing. I, for a certain kind of music had kind of come into play in his last days, his last even months uh, on earth. And so I started to sing um, the song Moon River uh, just to myself. And I got as far as my Huckleberry friend, uh, and I just dissolved. So, I mean, I guess I was sort of my own trigger on that occasion. Anyway, I'm no stranger to crying in the cars, uh, in the car. But Pen Narvis, I think another thing that's uh, true here, you said it felt safe when you were eight and you cried in the car. And one point that you made in your piece was, you know, there's a lot of places where you just, if you're going to cry, you're going to invite the attention of onlookers, whether it's public transportation or walking down the street, right? Right, right. Um, Yeah, like to have a good cry, a wholesome cry, you want to be fully engaged in it and not necessarily thinking about who's looking at you on the bus or have people interrupt you on the street, you know? Right. And yeah, you don't want somebody coming up to you and saying, are you all right? Because you're obviously not all right, but you don't necessarily want to want to talk about it. Um, and, and there's a way, Kara, uh, where the car is kind of an armor around you, right? You're you can just be there and not presumably not be interfered with. Right. Exactly. I think people feel um, I think one of the quotes I used in my story was that it, it, it's kind of a cocoon space. You you feel completely alone. It's your space and it's your time that you're not necessarily doing anything else. Um, the funny thing about that, of course, is that you're not really alone. I mean, people can totally see you. Um, but I think that there is a feeling there's temperature control. You're comfortable. You feel alone and protected and secure in a way that you don't in other spots. Have you had the experience of like just being in a red light and seeing somebody near you crying in the car? Yeah, I definitely have. And um, that was another reason I wanted to write this story. I've seen I've seen a lot of people cry in the car and I bet I bet most people have. Um, we should say that there obviously can be precipitating tragedies. Uh, you and I both have talked about losing our father. Um, Penn uh, Pen Darvis, you also lost somebody and, and had that experience, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, just last year I lost a friend who took his own life. Um, and it was one of those things where, like, you know, in the circle of friends that I have, nobody really showed emotion or yeah, I wasn't too open about how sad it was. And then, you know, as I left my friends and talking about my friend who took his life, I just kind of, you know, broke down in the car. Um, and it usually happens not necessarily at a red light while I'm driving, but more so like when I pull up to my house and like hit the recliner button on the on the chair and, you know, stare at the car ceiling. Um, and what was just said about how the car is a safe space, it's like literally built for like airbags and it has insurance, you know, and there's locks on the door, so it feels safe. But yeah, you're still just, out in public. Um, so it's, it's a bit of a, a twisted concept. Right. And and some of this is, I mean, the world isn't really built to handle our crying for the most part. Um, if you're going to cry at work, that's going to be a situation. If you're going to cry in front of the people you live with, that's a different situation. Sometimes you want to cry and just not there not be any consequences. Although, um, Pendarvis, I know that you work with prisoners and you say that they are maybe a little bit more comfortable crying and, and crying when somebody can see them. I'm assuming that's because they have so few opportunities to cry in complete privacy anyway. 
Well, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say crying per se, but I definitely would say the, the population that I've worked with in prisons in Northern California, um, those classrooms have been more vulnerable than, I, than the, the high school classrooms that I've worked with in Northern California, um, where, you know, these are older guys who um, understand what it's like to really confront some of their demons and not only to do so um, just for rehabilitation purposes, but also to do so for, like an effort to get out. Um, they have to appeal to the board. And so in, in having that necessity over their heads, they're really making an effort to deal with some of this emotional baggage that they carry. Um, Kara, I get the feeling, actually, I, I brush past your Les Miserables thing too easily. I mean, there are ways in which, you know, music, and as you get older, it's going to get worse, by the way. I mean, yeah. you get to be my age, almost like a bank commercial can make you cry. <laughs> but, um, but the, I mean, in that case, you were really reacting maybe not so much to the play itself, but to the idea of citizens taking things into their own hands. Right, right, exactly. I think, especially considering the current com- political climate, um, it, it it appealed to me in that way. I, I thought about citizens taking things into their own hands, just like you said, and it, it evoked a really emotional response in me. It also, I think, with musicals and certain other music, it reminds us of our youth sometimes. Um, I saw a lot of musicals when I was young, so hearing them again as as a um, now as a parent myself, it it brings out a lot of a lot of emotion too. Um, hey, and I also get the feeling, Cara, that you do planned cries, kind of you like you you know that you would like to cry, right? So you kind of set the whole thing up for yourself so you can do that. Totally, I can. I mean, I could I could probably cry in the car on cue anytime with. A number of of songs or just thinking about something. It is such a confined time that you have that I think it's emotionally heightened in a way that other times of the day are not. Um, and when I wrote my story, I talked to a couple of people who literally had crying in the car playlists that they could play when they needed a good cry. Pendarvis, <laughs> um, I'm wondering what kind of response you got to your piece in Medium. Did uh, people that you know or people that you don't know want to talk to you about this? Uh, yeah, it was kind of a, one of those casual conversations with a friend that led to me writing it. Um, and so we talk about <laughs> a friend, Ayana, she lives in New York. Um, she talks about how she rides along with her emotions in the car with her and to the point that she should be able to take the carpool lane um, <laughs> with the space that they occupy. Um, and I, Yeah, I think it's it's a... It's really something that's a kind of a phenomenon to think that like this vehicle with the glass windows could really protect you, not only like when you're crying in the car, but make you think that no one can see you when you're trying to hit Mariah Carey high notes in the car or when you're uh, digging in your nose in the car, you know, like <laughs> what, is, what is the car industry selling us that makes us believe this? Yeah, I think, you know, we're going to talk to a therapist and a couple of therapists, but a therapist in the second segment. Uh, and there's been some research that in, indicates that we do think of the car. The car becomes kind of a carapace, an extension of our body. Uh, it's one of the reasons why if your car just, you know, gets hit but just dented in an insignificant way, you can have a huge reaction to it because really having kind of a somatic reaction to it, it's as though someone had hit you personally in the body that hard. It's kind of, it's like ourselves extended out into the world. But I think that is true. Uh, and Kara, I think that your piece reflects that too. People kind of think that they're in a private space and maybe even an invisible space. 
Right, exactly. Even though even though people can see you through the window, I think it is it is considered a private space, and it's considered. Um, I think this is something Pendarvis was saying in his piece. It's you're alone and you're away from the reach of other people. And I think sometimes that can be a relief. Not that there's anything wrong with reaching out to people. Of course, we should all do that. But sometimes you just don't want that. You want just yourself. Okay, we got uh, time, I think, uh, before break to uh, grab a call here. I'm going to grab a call from Teresa in New London. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, I've never called a show before in my life. But when I heard crying in the car, I had to call. It brought back the memory of Puff the Magic Dragon being a trigger for me during my car ride to UConn Law School with colleagues, of course. My brother had passed away right before I began law school, and while I realize now the song is actually about smoking weed, I did not know that back in 1985. And when I heard uh, Dragons Live Forever But Not So Little Boys, this caused a complete unexpected reaction. Had to pull over, and all my law school colleagues who I'm competing with and worried about how they view me, I, I must have cried for 20 minutes over Puff the Magic Dragon. I still ruefully smile when I see those colleagues today um, um, over that moment. I, I think it's a point of contention whether that is really about smoking weed. And oh, I, I think it's been argued. I think you, you could you could still tell that story with a relatively clean conscience. And I'm not oh, even good, sure that the author is willing to admit that it's about smoking weed. I, I feel better because people have mocked me about the reaction. And all I can remember is dragons live forever, but yeah. not some little boys. And uh there I was in the car trying to be the law school student uh, who could uh, knock it all down, and there I was sobbing over the, the song, and my sister and I still sort of laugh about it, although actually the incident isn't all that funny, but it made me think about how vulnerable you are in a car and the combination of music and cars. Yeah, Absolutely. Kara, um, uh, we're probably going to get this a little bit more in the second segment, but you're not always alone in the car. I don't know how, how old your kids are, but sometimes people have reported to us that having kids in the back seat sometimes means you can say things to them that you couldn't say if you had to turn and face them. Right. I think that's totally true. That's something my mom always said, actually. She, she always said to us when we were young that cars are a great place to have that kind of conversation because you're not looking at each other. And I have I have pretty little kids. I have 10, 7, and a 4-year-old. Um, so we're not getting to too many difficult conversations yet. But absolutely, it's a place where you can say anything to them because, for one thing, they can't get out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to grab a break here. We want to thank uh, Pendarvis Harshaw a lot, a host of Right Nowish on KQED. You can check that out. He's a columnist at KQED Arts and the author of OG Told Me, a memoir about growing up in Oakland. Uh, we're going to take our break. We're going to come back. Uh, well, first of all, I should say um, that uh, except for – probably This American Life, and of course, right now-ish on KQED. I can't really think of too many shows that would have tackled this topic. It's just one of these things that we we pounced on it the minute we sort of said the words crying in the car out loud. So I hope that means something to you. And if it does, when these nice people ask you to support our show, including, I believe, senior producer Betsy Kaplan, please do it. Please make the call that they're asking you to make or the online pledge that they're asking you for. Hey, it's Kyone Wolf here with Betsy Kaplan taking a second out of your podcast. I know you thought you were totally off the hook from listening to the live fundraising, but we just want to take a second to say thanks for tuning in. And also, please help us keep this coming into your podcast feed. The number to call to be a member or renew your membership is 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. 
And you have lots of advantages listening to the show on podcast because we're only going to speak to you for about 20 (laughs) seconds, maybe 50 seconds Mm -hmm. on like five minutes. So reward us with the fact that we're speaking to you less time. We're taking less time out of your enjoyment of this great show that you're listening to. Give us some support to keep these shows going, no matter how you listen to them. 1-800-584-2788 or go online at WNPR.org. I think that a car is really the only place in modern life where we have any expectation of privacy. Although crying in the shower is pretty good, too, if you can keep it quiet because the tears are washed away. In a car, you are in the world, but not of the world. So it's a semi-safe place as long as you're not in traffic. You can look in your mirrors and make sure that nobody can see you. Then the spirit is free to move one in a way that it cannot while the mask is firmly up when there are other people around. That is a person unknown who called a special voicemail line that we'd set up uh, to, for people to talk about crying in cars and using cars as an emotional space. Uh, we also heard on Facebook, I guess we didn't hear on Facebook, we read on Facebook of another person who tried to use the shower, but she's a person who likes to, I don't know if she likes to, she screams in her car. She needs to scream at times, and she screams in her car. She tried screaming in the shower, but there wasn't enough privacy. You really needed that sort of closed-in experience. She Uh, mentioned that she screamed so much in the car one time that she was unable to sing a solo that had been planned with her church choir. So um, joining us uh, in studio is Kara McDonough, a Connecticut resident, writer for HuffPost, Salon, Boston Globe, McSweeney's. She brought this idea to us. Uh, You can read her blog at karamcdonough.com. If I spell it to you, you'll never write it down. We'll just put it up on the web page for this show. Um, And she wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post called Why Cars Are a Popular Place for a Good Cry. Uh, And before I introduce our other guests for this segment, uh, let me also say that we are welcoming your phone calls here about either crying in the cars, or car or somehow or other using the car as an emotional space, a specific kind of emotional space. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Uh, let's add to the conversation uh, Dr. Fred Peepman, licensed psychologist practicing in San Francisco. We had to go to the Bay Area for a lot of our uh, experts for some reason for this show. And the author of the book, Parenting Across the Gap, Raising Teens in the 21st Century. Uh, so, Dr. Peepman, welcome to the conversation. Thank you very much for having me, and shout out to Pendarvis, and also appreciation for Kara. Okay, so um, one of the well, we can start with the, using the car as a, a space for a good cry. Uh, although I want to also talk about uh, ways that parents use it uh, as a way to talk to their kids. But let's talk about the the, the cry. Um, is there anything that we haven't gotten at so far that you want to make a point about? Sure, sort of connecting to what the last caller said. You know, the car is one of the few spaces that is non-digital where people feel more comfortable sharing their deeper emotions. There are a couple other ones, a confessional box, as the last caller mentioned, shower, therapy spaces. But there aren't too many places where we are in the presence of other people or private without that degree of actual connectedness and without having to have things be via digital media or phones. 
Right. Uh, we, we've made it harder to get away from each other. So, Kara, you and I were talking, t- talking during the break. I was telling you, I wish I could remember the person who told me this story, but it was somebody who said, yeah, my husband and I got in the car for a three-hour drive, and we're just driving along, looking straight forward, and by the time we got to our destination, we decided to get divorced. Um, and she thought that that conversation wouldn't have ha- happened anyway. And, Kara, I know you sort of feel, not that you've had that particular experience, but you feel the same yeah, way, that there's, there's ways that the configuration of bodies in the car, if there's more than one person allows you to talk without looking right exactly i have i have children i have three children and so they're always in back of me um and while they're young enough that we haven't gotten to any seriously difficult conversations yet i wouldn't say it it definitely makes it easier to talk to them um one thing i do that i'm sure they're going to talk about um when they're older and make fun of me is that i use it to deliver impromptu lectures on you know kindness and love and politics um because they can't you know they're they're not doing they they might be doing something else but they have to listen to me um and i know that our time is short in the car and sometimes i'll be listening to a news story and it'll prompt me to do that um the other thing i tend to do is tell them, you know, that I love them and I'm proud of them. And not that I don't do that at other times, but the car is a place where if, if they get squirmy when I'm saying things like that, there's really not much they can do. And plus, at least I'm not looking them right in the eyes. And um, I think that it, it's a time that a lot of emotion can come out um, for for parents and children. Right. A person who works in this building, who shall remain nameless, told us that she found that that particular configuration was even good for the let's talk about sex for the first time sure. conversation because you don't because they're in the back and you just are just talking to nobody. Basically, you feel less embarrassed. Well, uh, Fred, you actually yeah. uh, you do therapy sessions in cars. Tell us about that. I do. Indeed. There are certain people who feel more comfortable in a place that, of course, is private, but that, as other uh, other guests have kind of mentioned, is it's private. It's protected, and it's kind of their own space. And it's almost a rite of passage for, you know, older adolescents when they get their license, because it's a symbol of independence. There's a lot of ownership, and I work with adolescents and young adults and their parents. And so sometimes people are more comfortable in that environment. And I have found that people are more open. They certainly do cry a lot more. And also, I think it's a little bit of a common shared experience that each of us has probably said or done something in a car that we may not do, let's say, if we were face-to-face or, let's say, walking down the street or the sidewalk as pedestrians. Um, There is something that's going on in the car, and it's sometimes hard to put our finger on what that mood is. But let's uh, listen to at least one expert about this. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld obviously launched an entire series called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. So let's hear him and David Letterman discuss that. The other question is, uh, to me, and I thought about this, could we have done the show without cars? Could it be just comedians, no. comedians getting coffee? No. Comedians playing cards no. getting coffee? No. <laughs> Has and, to be and, cars. And these are just my theories. I don't know if they're, uh, they hold water, but these are my theories. I think part of what makes the show watchable is it's moving. Mm-hmm. That there's an energy. Right. When you have no narrative drive, no one's waiting to see what happens. We know they're going to get coffee. Um, you need a kinetic energy. You need moving the guests. Here's another theory of mine. Moving people around keeps them awake. <laughs> I, I like that idea. So, uh, so, Fred, what about that? What about that energy that builds up in the car? You know, I love that concept because... There is this kinetic energy, but there's also this sort of pent-up energy to some extent because you have a shared common goal. You have that same destination that you're going to. So at least 
even if you have a teenager or a partner or husband wife in the car who is not being particularly agreeable there is at least one thing you have in common you're going to the same place i also think that there it helps with alleviating some of the power differential because one person is driving and they have to be kind of focusing on that and so you're not going to be turning around and yelling or scolding hopefully if you're a safe driver so it makes that communication a little bit less threatening and a little bit more reciprocal but i love the idea of having a shared common goal as kara said it's certainly time limited and it is this perceived protected space i love what pendarvis said too about the idea that it is protected and it's comfortable you've got seat belts you've got airbags you've got climate control and so you can customize this and it is designed for our comfort but also for our safety so Kara, i wonder about that too because about the person driving because the person driving can can perpetuate an illusion that um that nothing important is happening you know because i'm driving so I, I couldn't possibly be saying anything important or disturbing to you right now. I'm driving, after all. Uh, and, and I wonder about that. I wonder if that's sort of one of the things that sort of allows the driver to then begin saying important things. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think I think one of, one of the reasons that it, it becomes this safe but also emotionally charged space is that um, driving is obviously extremely important and we should all pay attention to the road and not our phones and all of that. But it is this sort of... Um, it feels like a stolen time to me. It's a time that you really can't be doing anything else. So even if you are driving, you know, you're often thinking about something or talking to the people in the car and and you really can't, you really cannot be, you can't be folding your laundry or working or watching a movie. And so I think that it becomes this time when it's, it seems very valuable, even though it's just a regular time of day. But sometimes I think I get this urgent feeling and that sometimes is what brings up either crying or telling my children things that I think are important and seem very urgent in that moment. You know, we had many conversations about this on social media, and one of our regular panelists on the Friday No Show was writing that he knew a lot of couples, Fred, who broke up in cars. Um, he said even thinking about that made him realize that he knows a lot of couples who break up, uh, and that made him sad, and he wished he could go cry in his car. Um, but uh, um, but what about that? Is, is, is there a way in which the car is a medium to do something as dire as that? Absolutely. I think part of it is because one person or perhaps the couple together, they own the car. So that is definitely one person space. And there's usually one primarily one primary driver rather in that in that car. And so it's that person's space. It is also, again, as Kara had mentioned, too, it is time limited. It is protected. You know, you're not going to be in the car forever. And because we have this positive illusion, which is, I think, part of the reason why we feel so invisible, so protected, so private. In there, that we think a car, a car ride, or even just sitting in the car, is temporary. And also, we have this idea that it's quiet, it's protected. So that's another factor where people tend to say a little bit more. It's an I call it the automobile disinhibition effect. <laughs> and I think that's the same factor that contributes to sure crying, screaming, definitely, definitely road rage, uh, road rage rather, and also some of these confessions. We've got TV shows about that, comedians, people singing karaoke and doing mm-hmm. many things in cars that they wouldn't have done. 
Yeah, I get the uh, th- that idea, Kara, uh, of one person owns the car, so that person uh, feels as though it's a controllable space. So you'd be less likely to do some of these things in a rental car. T- uh, totally. Yeah. I, I I mean, personally, it's not that I'm in rental cars all the time, but I've never cried in a rental car. I don't feel like it's my space. I think most people um, don't. Um, like Dr. Pittman said, I think that when somebody owns the car, it's a comfortable space that people are used to spending time in. It's a really different dynamic than a rental car where you're just, you know, trying not to crash it or scratch it at all because it's um, it's not yours. It doesn't give you that same sense of um security, or at least it doesn't to me, maybe for some people who are in them more often it does. So let me grab a call from uh, Jim, I think from Carmel, California. Hi, Jim. Hello. Yes, it is Jim. Uh, I'm calling because I listen to you all the time. I wanted to let you know that I I spent 35 years uh, working in a community college teaching uh, people with learning disabilities and dyslexia and all kinds of things. And I always recommended in the study skill classes I taught to study in their car. It uh, had a sense of uh, less distraction. If they went home, there was always things to do. If they went into the library, there was always people stopping by to talk. And uh, it was very effective for many, many students. It gave them a sense of security and and um, just relaxation. Right. It kind of goes back to something Penn Darvis was saying, that which we know the car is built for us to be safe in it, you know, that it has all kinds of safety equipment. Uh, we probably do feel safer and certainly less distracted in that space. All right. I've got to grab another break or I'll get in all kinds of trouble here. I want to say thank you to Dr. Fred Peepman, licensed psychologist practicing in San Francisco, author of the book Parenting Across the Gap, Raising Teens in the 21st Century. Good luck if you have to do that. Uh, I guess that's coming up for you, Kara. Uh, and we'll take a break and we will be back quite quickly. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me. Nobody helped us. <laughs> Why won't anybody help us? Hey, buddy, the light's not going to get any greener. And poor Amanda Fish, doomed to live her life below the waves. Our intern is Seth Blair. Oh, God, the lives of interns are so sad. Hey, lady, what's up with the left turn signal you never turn off? The part of Bill Curry was played by Chris Tucker. (laughs) On tomorrow's show, the nose talks Game of Thrones. And now, back to Colin. Hey, snail boy, I'd like to get home before Easter. I never should have read the Mueller report in the car. <laughs> yeah, no, don't do that. That's really going to upset you. So it's our crying in the car show. I should very specifically say, too, that uh, I have a bunch of talented producers here. We have actually been experimenting with uh, some guest producers while one of our producers is on paternity leave. But Josh Nalea is sort of the go-to guy for these missions that have no obvious outcome. It's kind of like, how you're going to do a show about crying in the car. I have no idea how you're going to do it. Go, go, go take it, Josh. And uh, he likes those kinds of missions, too. So uh, Karen McDonough is here with us uh, the whole way today. Uh, but although we're going to shift gears a little bit away from perhaps Kara's, Kara's area of expertise, but who knows. Uh, and we are going to talk about about another location in which to cry. I have to say that 
although I'm a pretty easy cry. I don't think I've ever done this before, but uh, Dr. Seth Myers joins us, licensed clinical psychologist, Psychology Today blogger, and frequent TV guest expert. Uh, his re- recent uh, article uh, appeared on the pointsguy.com. It's titled, Why We Cry on Airplanes, According to a Psychologist. So, Dr. Seth Myers, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. So we've been talking a lot about uh, crying in cars and doing other emotional things in cars because they they are one of the few really, really private spaces we have, or at least we think they're, they're private spaces. The airplane would seem to be kind of the opposite. Like if you're crying in the airplane, a lot of strangers are going to be watching you cry. So so why would that be happening? Well, it's it's a really good distinction you're making. So You know, one is voluntary crying. You know, people often um, choose to cry in the safety of a car. Um, A lot of times the crying on an airplane, it's involuntary. You feel compelled to cry, but you wish to God that you could cut it off because it's embarrassing. You have strangers surrounding you. And and so um, so is there a trigger? Is there a reason? So you yeah, I'm sitting next to one of the people who voluntarily cries in cars sometimes just because she wants to cry, and this is the space in which to do it. But is there a, what would cause you on an airplane to cry? I mean, obviously, if you're watching a sad movie or something like that. But are there other reasons people start crying? There are there there are a few different um, kind of theories of why people are more prone to cry on airplanes. And, and I can go through them quickly. One of them is, is an evolutionary theory, which means that we cry to send out a distress signal, which um, is intended to elicit help from others. So in other words, in case something were to happen, um, something bad were to go wrong, if you cry and send out that distress signal, others will be more likely to come um, to your aid. Another theory is um, a physiological one, which is that um, because of the altitude, the oxygen levels are reduced. And it's when you have reduced oxygen, it causes dehydration. It is the dehydration that actually causes mood disturbances. Um, well, first of all, before I uh, ask another question, I should also say that uh, Dr. Seth Meyer's latest book is called Overcome Relationship, uh, Overcome Relationship Repetition Syndrome and Find the Love You Deserve. Boy, I would imagine that would be a broad market uh, for something with that title. So uh, I wish you luck. So um, first of all, let me ask you, Kara, have you ever cried on an airplane? Well, actually, I thought I hadn't. Um, I was I saw that Dr. Myers would be on the show, and I was like, oh, I don't think I've done that. But then I remembered that I definitely have. Um, once was when I had finished a book that had a very emotional ending, and I, I could not stop crying <laughs> on the airplane, and I remember being kind of embarrassed. Um, and then another time was when there was a sad movie on. I think I was on a long flight. I'd probably had a glass of wine, and I was watching a sad movie, and I did start crying. Um, I don't do it with the frequency of crying in cars, but um, I do know a lot of people who have cried on airplanes. So it would seem as though part of this—I mean, so uh, Dr. Myers, when we were talking about crying in cars, 
we talked about the way that you have, if you're the driver, you have a lot of control when you're in the car. So if you don't want things to spiral out of control, you want to have a controlled cry, it's a pretty good space to do that or a pretty good space to bring up, if there's somebody else in the car, a, a difficult topic. Uh, you know, you're both looking forward. It seems as though the airplane is the opposite, right? You have surrendered control to a bunch of people that you hope know how to do your jobs. And, and I'm wondering if that might contribute also to what Kara just described, which is crying longer and harder than she might typically have done uh, at the end of a sad book. Well, you're exactly right. You know, when you bring up the, the control issue, that is one of the other major fe- um, theories about why people cry on airplanes. Um, you really are out of your scope of practice knowing how on earth you would manage in case of danger or a catastrophe. Um, So the loss of control, especially for personalities who need a high level of order, who need a high level of predictability, alpha personalities, so-called control freaks, they are going to be more likely to cry on airplanes. Um, Why? Because in this circumstance, their defenses are down. Their normal psychological defenses that keep their mood balanced, keep them feeling like things are in control, those defenses are down. They are more prone to, quote-unquote, lose it. So if I'm running an airline, I probably don't want to have cabins full of sobbing people because that's just going to send the wrong message about what's happening here. So I gather that Virgin Atlantic, for example, has tried to figure out what does make people cry, particularly what movies make people cry on planes. Well, that's right. You know, and and interestingly enough, Virgin Atlantic's 2011 survey is kind of what put this issue on the map, crying on airplanes. And they actually um, identified that they need to put a disclaimer on movies, on emotional movies that were offered as a part of the in-flight entertainment um, to sort of warn people about the emotional dangers Um, of watching something that is too sentimental in such a confined space. I have to say they're top ten lists. So, Carol, let's see if any of these are the ones that made you cry. Do you know? Do you remember which movie made you cry? I, I think it was Bridge to Terabithia, okay, you know, so. which is just devastating. <laughs> okay, so no, Toy Story 3. I don't get these. A lot of these I, I just don't get. But Toy Story 3, The Blind Side, Eat, Pray, Love, My Sister's Keeper, Seven Pounds, Brokeback Mountain, The Notebook, Grand Torino, Invictus, and Billy Elliot. I only see about why about half of those would make you cry. But I guess very quickly, too, uh, uh, Dr. Seth Meyer, Another thing that's happening on a plane is not only have you surrendered control in terms of whether or not the plane takes off and lands and reaches its destination safely, but you've also surrendered control in the sense that you're sitting in a way and in a place that you would never choose to sit in. It's an uncomfortable seat. It might be a middle seat. There's not enough room for your legs. So you're miserable anyway. I mean, that might, might make you more likely to cry. Exactly. And, you know, your point brings me to what I believe is the number one factor that makes people more prone to feeling emotional or crying on an airplane. And that is stress and fatigue. The entire experience of airline travel today, packing um, for the trip, actually traveling to the airport, security lines, getting into an economy seat that is so ridiculously small sharing space where you don't have even an inch separating you in an economy seat from another passenger. So 
you don't you're not properly fed you're not properly offered water to keep you hydrated you're uncomfortable you're frustrated and you just want out <laughs> well uh we don't want out but we have to get out right now because yeah. it's time to do a little pledge break we want to thank uh, dr seth myers uh he's his article was why we cry on airplanes according to a psychologist uh special thanks to kara mcdonough i mean we, we would not have done this show uh without kara's suggestion so and it's been great to have her here as my buddy in, in the studio and great to have a team here that will put together a show like this there's no template for doing this particular show like if we were going to do a show today about the Mueller report, we'd probably know how to do it. But there's no template for how to do this show because I don't think anybody's ever done anything quite like it. So you have to have some people around who are willing to figure that out, to invent it from nothing. And that's what I'm going to ask you to support. Some nice people are going to ask you to support this show right now with a pledge. Do it. Please do it. Please consider making that phone call or giving online at WNPR.org. And thank you to all of you who already did give during this hour. You guys are my heroes. Thank you so much.